0: Good morning Grace. It's great to see you. Thanks for that seven. Shout out right back to you. Uh one more thing I wanted to add, if you have not filled out your survey, please go fill out your survey. Actually wait till church is done, then go fill it out. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, check your email. If you didn't get that email, check your spam. It's probably not in there. If you didn't get it in your spam, you may not be in our database, so Uh, contact us and we'll make sure that your information gets put in there so that you can get the email so that you can fill out the survey. We are uh, uh, planning on first baby steps into re-entry. We are planning um, ways to start gathering together to move in the direction that we need to go in order to be one big family together on Sunday mornings again. So uh, we just wanted some feedback from you guys on some different things. So we sent out that survey. So if you haven't filled that out, please make sure that you go do that. Uh, one more note on uh, the special offering on the 31st. This is going to be a really great weekend. Uh, we're going to, over the next couple of weeks, work on getting some different videos from the missionaries uh, so that we can actually have some interaction with them and hear from them About the work that they're doing so please be thinking about that be praying about that be talking about that as uh as we've been saying all right uh if you if your first thought when you came on this morning was um my gosh sam needs a haircut i don't disagree Uh, we were actually just having that conversation this morning me and jordan and david and i told them my hair has not been this long since 2005. so yes count them 15 years um and Uh, Back then, it was only as long as it was because I had a dare with Mitch Duke. Uh, He probably remembers this, and I caved first because I couldn't handle it. It wasn't much longer than it is now, so uh, don't expect this much longer. It's pure laziness. Let's get into Daniel. Okay, I am excited about this week because we are finishing up our time in the book of Daniel and also finishing up our time in the Old Testament. We have been in the Old Testament either reading uh, in small groups and on Sunday mornings since the end of September. Uh, September 29th or September 28th, I can't remember which it was, it was when we started this series. And we have been walking from Genesis uh, all the way through the Old Testament. And so in your reading, if you're caught up, you're going to finish 2 Chronicles later this week. And then we're going to move from 2 Chronicles right into Matthew. Um, and so next Sunday, we are going to be starting our talk our series, our preaching and teaching through the New Testament, which is going to be amazing. So today we are going to finish up the Old Testament. We are going to be in, uh, still in the book of Daniel, uh, finishing up our mini series on what it means to have, to live life in exile as we looked at the book of Daniel and have looked at their lives in exile in Babylon. So a couple things real quick out of the gate that I want to make sure that we see. That things, that we, things that we need to look for as we read through Daniel chapter 9. That's where we're going to be. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and go there. Uh, w- what we want to notice is how Daniel reads and how Daniel responds. Right? How Daniel reads and how Daniel responds. Because, in large part, this is our goal. As we've been going through the year of biblical literacy, the year of the Bible, as we've been reading through it, teaching on it, uh, experiencing it in our small groups, um, the goal is to read and respond, right? Read and respond, read and respond. It's not We're not just reading it for intellectual growth. We're reading it because uh, we want the Bible to affect us. We want it to change us. We want to, uh, in a sense, crawl up inside the story and allow it to do its work in us. And we really, truly believe as Christians that the Word of God is living and active. And so as we interact with it, it affects us. Uh, but there also tends to be, um, ways in which we interact with it. And if we want the Bible to affect us the way, um, that it wants to affect us, we have to interact with it in a sense of humility. And so again, we, I want us to pay attention to Daniel, the way he reads and the way he responds. If that's confusing to you, you're, you're going to see it. We'll get there. Um, what we have to understand is we're looking at this uh, idea, um, of life in exile we can actually take that idea and we can zoom out and look at the the scriptures in their entirety from genesis all the way to revelation and we can see some themes right around land we have the theme of the promised land and we have the theme of exile in uh foreign land or exile to another culture those are two major themes that if we see, if we look at the bible through those lenses we will see those themes all the way through they're there all the time The Old Testament, New Testament, it's there. Um, And so we have to pay attention to it. One of the themes that we've kind of seen float to the surface as we've gone through the book of Daniel is this idea that hope motivates faithfulness. Hope motivates faithfulness. And so as we exist, much like Daniel and his friends, they existed in exile in a foreign land. Now we, we talked about this last week, we exist in exile in a foreign land. Not necessarily physically, although there are people in our world that, that exist in that way physically. We exist, uh, as Christians, we exist in that way spiritually. We believe that we belong to the kingdom of God. That kingdom of God does not exist here on this earth physically yet. It has not been physically consummated. We believe that that hope is for the future, and that hope is what motivates us to continue on in the Christian life to live not as citizens of this world, but as citizens of the kingdom of God. So in that way, we are living life in exile. Now, we, uh, we can see as we look back through not just biblical history, but history the history of the world, we can see this train of human kingdoms. We can see this long line of human cruelty and injustice and we believe just like we read about in daniel that there's this stone that's going to roll and it's going to crush the human kingdoms and this stone that's not cut by human hands that that is uh represents jesus will grow into a huge mountain that represents the kingdom of god and justice will be restored uh evil be evil and death will be done away with and we will experience the fullness of the kingdom of god forever now uh much of the second half of daniel now some of you as i just said that we're going to read daniel chapter 9 today and then we're going to be done with the old testament some of you uh, know that we have spent the last few weeks in daniel's chapter 1 through 6 and now there's uh, quite a few chapters in daniel that we're not going to cover the majority of those chapters deal with the uh what we would commonly refer to as the end times or the basically the, the time before uh, the return of Jesus and the kingdom of God is set up. It's very deep, very confusing, apocalyptic literature. And uh, if you would like to continue to study that, by all means, uh, for the sake of time, there's so much that we have not been able to cover in the Old Testament. This has been an extreme flyby in many ways. We are not going to get into that. We just are, I'm just going to say that it's, uh, it's very rich and very rewarding, but also very deep and very complex. Uh, And it doesn't fit into the theme of what we're talking about in this series. And so I'm just going to say that it's there. Uh, It's wonderful. And there's a lot of things that it says about what we're moving into and where we are actually now living 3,000 years after Daniel existed. In many ways, we're experiencing what those chapters talk about, I believe. Anyhow, we're going to talk about what Daniel experiences in Daniel chapter 9. We're going to see a beautiful prayer of of confession. We're going to ask the question, what exactly is he confessing? And we're going to see that he's approaching God to ask for the exile to be over. And he approaches God by confessing. And all of this he does as he consults the book of Jeremiah. We've talked about uh, this all along that we're reading daniel through the lens of jeremiah chapter 29 how jeremiah wrote to the exiles and told them to be in the city for the city as they were exiled to babylon he told them to build houses uh, to get married to have kids to to make have their kids get married to set up life plant gardens to exist in the city of babylon for the good of the city of babylon and we've talked all along about how difficult this is and what a tension Uh, that requires us to live in if we want to do that successfully so daniel in chapter nine is consulting the book of jeremiah again and he is praying and pleading for god to let their exile be over now if we're going to look back what we're going to see right a little bit of history here he, he he understands daniel understands that they are exiled because of their own actions they are exiled to Babylon because of what they have done. If we go back, right, um, the, the Israelites received the law. They entered into covenant with God. Um, they entered into the promised land. Um, but after 400 years of utter failure on the part of the Israelites to live up to the covenant that they entered into uh, readily uh, when they announced on, at Mount Sinai all that the Lord has said we will do. They they did that corporately. They did that together. They entered willingly into the covenant with God and they have failed for 400 years to live up to their their part of that covenant. In fact, the Bible says that they were actually worse than the nations that were around them that they were supposed to be a blessing to. They actually became worse than the pagan countries around them. And so God orchestrates their downfall using the nation and the empire of Babylon. God actually uses this evil empire of Babylon as a tool To judge and punish his chosen people, and so they're taken out of the promised land. They're marched across the desert. Their world is shattered. And as we we saw in the early chapters of Daniel, um, Daniel is forced to serve the king. is made a eunuch. He has lost everything about his culture, his family, his life. Now, what we have seen throughout the book of Daniel is that Daniel's a really good guy. He's a really good guy, which is rare in biblical narrative as we read through um, the narrative of the Old Testament, even the best guys, right? Our heroes of the faith in the Old Testament are all incredibly flawed people, incredibly flawed. As we look at Moses, as we look at um, Noah, as we look at um, Samson, as we look at David, these are incredibly flawed individuals um, who are nevertheless walking in relationship with God. And so here we have this guy Named Daniel. And we have not been introduced to any of Daniel's flaws. No doubt he has them. But the narrative that we have in Daniel chapter 1 through 6 paints Daniel as a faithful individual. And yet here Daniel is confessing. This is key. We have to understand this. He reads and he responds, right? He's he's consulting the book of Jeremiah. We're actually going to see that in a minute. He's consulting the book of Jeremiah and he's responding in such a way that we have to pay attention to if we want to know how to live uh, in exile, the tension that we need to live in. Now, Daniel hasn't committed any of the sins that he is confessing. Daniel has been faithful, right? In the face of utter death and destruction, multiple times we see Daniel has been faithful uh, to his God. Even if it means getting cast into a den of lions, Daniel's going to be faithful. So everything that we have seen up to this point in Daniel's life is utter faithfulness, and yet here we have him confessing. Um, this is probably not how most of us would respond to everything that Daniel's been a part of. Everything that Daniel has been, ha- has been experiencing over the years would not lead me um, to, re- to repent the sins of other people, right? <laughs> it would lead me to become bitter, um, to have a victim mentality, uh, to feel morally superior, and to maybe mail it in, and perhaps not even be faithful anymore, to lose hope. But that's not what we see from Daniel. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna start. We're gonna read through the book of Daniel da- or the the chapter Daniel nine, and we're gonna pause and we're gonna talk about different sections. So here we go, starting in verse one. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus by descent amid who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign i daniel perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the lord to jer- according to the word of the lord to jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of jer of jerusalem namely 70 years then i turned my face to the lord god seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. All right, so Daniel's been sitting in exile for 50 years, wondering how long it's going to continue. So, what does he do? He goes to the book of Jeremiah, he goes to the writings of Jeremiah. Now, this is really interesting. We have a guy in the Bible reading the Bible, right? Just like we do, just like we read and respond, we have Daniel reading and responding he's wondering he's pondering and so he's like oh let's go to the the bible and he actually finds an answer to what he's looking for right so let's go to jeremiah 25 which is probably what he was reading he probably didn't have chapter and verse like we do uh but we can actually see what it is that daniel was consulting as he was looking for answers here we go daniel chapter 25 starting in verse 8 therefore thus says the lord of hosts because you have not obeyed my words, behold I will send for I will send for all the tribes of the north declares the Lord and for Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon my servant and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror a hissing and an everlasting desolation moreover I will banish them from the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve, shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So Daniel reads this. Okay, Daniel reads this. He's seeking this out. He reads this and his response that we're going to see in a minute is, I prayed to the Lord, my God, and confessed. Confessed. Not, oh my goodness, it's almost over. Not, Oh my gosh! it's about time not I can't believe how lame they were. I can't believe like how much how much unfaithfulness they lived in in order for me to get punished in this way. Um, he confesses. Let's continue Daniel chapter nine, verse four. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, "O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep His commandments." We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. We, he says, we, not they, we. Turning aside from your commandments and rules, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God, by walking in his laws, which he has set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for our iniquities, of our fathers Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among those who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. There is so much for us to learn from this prayer of repentance. Notice his view of God's character. Four different times he says, God is righteous. He says in verses 4 to 14, he actually says that you were righteous. Several times he says you were righteous to punish us. You were righteous to punish us. God is righteous. His people were not. And because of his righteousness, uh, this judgment on their evil way was carried out. This judgment on their evil was enacted, was, was brought forth because of his righteousness. Daniel says that we don't like that kind of language makes us uncomfortable that we might be punished because of God's God's righteousness. In fact, in verse 16, at the end of his prayer, he says, "According to all your righteous acts, uh you, you have punished us." And then it, it continues, "According to all your righteous acts, please forgive us." This is amazing. He sees a depth of God's character It was God's righteousness that caused us to be punished, and it's God's righteousness that will then forgive us. And who has sinned? We. He sees himself as a part of the covenant people of God, and he takes responsibility for the sins of others because he is a part of the covenant people of God. There is no they. It's we. Man, we have so much to learn from that, don't we? We have so much to learn from taking responsibility for the sake of others uh, because we exist as a covenant people corporately together. Not just as individuals, but together. Now, uh, what I want to look at really quick before we move on is what this word righteousness means. What is righteous? Uh, We see it um, pertaining to God's judgment and we see it pertaining to God's, um, God's forgiveness and God's mercy. Now, this is one of those really weird church words. You don't see this anywhere else except for maybe Bill and Ted, right? Like, like the word righteous just doesn't come up in our culture very often, except in weird ways as slang terms. But if we're going to look at it according to the Bible, it's everywhere. It's all over the place. And one of the things that can be confusing for us sometimes is that we see as we describe God's character, we see all these different words that we think kind of all mean the same thing, right? So God is holy. God is pure, God is righteous. And we kind of tend to go, yeah, they're all kind of um different ways to say the same thing. And in a certain sense they are, um, but one of the unique things about this term righteous is that it requires something more than just a person being good. It requires something more. The term righteous is actually a relational term. Um, and so I can I can like a person can be holy by themselves. A person cannot be righteous by themselves. Righteousness requires relationship. Righteousness is a holiness pertaining to how we treat others and how we uh, are in exist in relationship with other people. Um, here's what Tim Mackey, uh, the, the founder of the Bible Project, has to say about this. He says this, A man who has a series of relationships, husband and a father, and he demonstrates his righteousness toward them, in what ways? Through his faithfulness, affection, dedication, provision. In certain ways, in the context, in the context of his relationship with them. So we can see this in different ways. So if we were to look at it in a term, in terms of a business owner, right? How would a business owner, a small business owner, uh, demonstrate righteousness in the way that he would treat his employees, and the way that he would treat his vendors, and the way that he would treat his clients or his customers? um that would that would be what uh how we would measure measure his righteousness as we exist in our neighborhoods right like we can think of small things we can think of big things but we can think of tangible ways that we would be righteous in our relationship with our neighbors we're loaning a cup of sugar uh we're helping people mow lawns rake leaves whatever it might be um the way we exist in our relationship with the people around us is uh this, this measure of righteousness. So um, the, the, the word is Sedeq. Uh, so this is what it really says. I'm just going to summarize this. God, you were Sedeq to us in faithfulness. We were not. You brought disaster on us. And that was Sedeq. You are righteous to us in your punishment of us. That was just, it was righteous. Now he says, because of your righteousness, forgive us. So God's righteousness uh, isn't limited to his, or it can't just be limited to his just discipline. It's incomplete. God's God's relationship with his covenant people, because he has made promises to them, must also include forgiveness. Daniel knows this. Daniel knows this. Let's look at verse 16 again. O Lord, according to all your what? Righteous acts. His righteousness judges, his righteousness punishes, and his righteousness restores and forgives because he is righteous. God is righteous. Daniel knows this, and so he responds with humility. He trusts in the righteousness of God, so he responds in humility. He responds in a bold plea And we can have both of those things at the same time. We can respond humbly and we can respond boldly at the same time. Now, again, if we look at this picture and we zoom out into the entire biblical narrative, instead of just the book of Daniel and this particular um, exile and judgment, we can see this, right? We can see God's ultimate purpose is to bring blessings to his people and to his enemies and to restore and to renew. This is Genesis chapter 12. God is faithful. God is righteous. And he will bring it about, even through his judgment and even through his punishment and even through his justice. God is completely righteous to judge, but not fully righteous until he forgives. Right? That's the promise that he made. He is not bound by that because we have decided he is bound by that. He is bound by that because he has said that he will do it. He promised that he would do it. And so he holds himself to his promises and he allows us to hold him to his promises as well. Daniel understands this. Move, listen, forgive, not because of anything that we have done, but because of who you are. You are righteous to destroy us. You are righteous to heal and to forgive. This is the character of God that Daniel sees. And if we read and respond rightly to the word of God, this is the character that we see from Genesis to Revelation. This is the character of God that we see. Now, we're going to look at two aspects of Daniel's humility. Number one, his response is burden, not apathy. And number two, and this comes from Dave Lomas. He is a pastor uh, in uh, San Francisco that did the year of b- biblical literacy before us. He says, confession, not complacency. Okay, so number one, we're gonna look at his burden, not apathy, uh, as a com- compare and contrast to Daniel's response. And number two, he responds in confession, not complacency. All right. Now, Daniel's response, number one, his his hum- humble response is one of burden, not apathy. Okay, this is this is applicable to us because if we read the word of God and we don't feel a burden, right what like that's the choice that we have if we read through the words of god and are not affected in any way that's in a certain sense that's that's an apathetic response if we believe the word of god for what it is and we as as christians would say we believe the word of god we believe in what it says we believe in its power to change us so if we are interacting with it and there's no change happening whatsoever that's an apathetic response so Daniel responds as he reads the word of God, right? As he reads the book of Jeremiah, he responds in burden. That's his humble response. Our whole the whole point of reading is to to hear love and obey Jesus, right? To hear love and obey Jesus. So let me let's let's uh let's do a little application here. In the situation that we're in, as we read Uh, the Word of God, as we interact with the Word of God, and as we see what's going on around us in our day, right now, today, 2020, um, the year to forget in many ways, at least so far, is our response one of mourning? Is our response one of mourning? That's a question that we can all ask ourselves. We We respond in irritation. We respond in... Uh, indignation we respond in apathy how many of us can honestly say we've responded in mourning not for ourselves as much as for others or maybe for uh us as a people together have we responded with a burden or have we responded in apathy when we watch when we watch the news are we do, do we feel a burden, do we feel an empathy to what's going on around us? These are really important questions for us to ask, specifically as we interact with the Word of God. It should make us view the world through different lenses right so daniel's daniel's viewing the exile through a certain lens, and so he looks for answers to what, the, the, what he's feeling, the sadness that he's feeling, the anguish that he's feeling, he looks for answers in the word of God and he finds those answers. And his response is one of burden, not apathy. How will we, warn our, how will we mourn our busyness that translates into apathy? This is a really interesting question. How will we mourn, how will we mourn our busyness that translates into apathy? Uh, why don't we actively love our neighbors? Why don't we do the things that, that we would, if we were to read through the Sermon on the Mount, that we clearly see Jesus asking us to do? I think many times we do it because we're too busy, right? Like, I mean, we've got the soccer games, we've got the schedule, we've got work, we've got the weekend plans, we've got this, 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 this. And I'm not saying none of those... Are, Like those don't exist and that's not true. But what happens is our busyness lulls us into apathy. We all of a sudden don't think twice. We don't look twice at the needs around us because we're so busy just jetting through our busy life. We're not responding in burden. We're responding in apathy. We're giving ourselves to something that lulls us into apathy. We don't respond in burden. And here's what tends to happen right and this is unbelievably clear to us if we really stop and look okay um our response what like what burden we do feel goes to facebook and twitter and then we go to bed we have allowed ourselves to think that somehow if i type in um if I type in something on Facebook, if I share something on Facebook, that that represents a burden and that that's enough. I'm not saying that it doesn't represent a burden, but what I am saying is that lives are not being changed through Facebook. I don't see it. I don't think you do either. But that's the, the apathy that we've been lulled into, that somehow our interaction on the internet is, is making a change. When we can walk out of our door and make a change in our neighbor's life. We can call that person that we know that's struggling right now and actually make a physical difference in their life. But we've been lulled into apathy and we no longer feel the burden. As we interact with the Word of God, we should respond with a burden. We should feel a burden for the lost. We should feel a burden for those who are being treated unjustly. And I'm not saying that none of us do because I know many of you do. I have conversations with you. I feel the burden that you have. But for many of us, it just exists in apathy and goes no farther than social media or uh, a quick thought. And then it's gone and we're back to our life. Let me give you a challenge for this week, okay? I want us to sit. Turn off your screens Turn off everything, all your distractions, and I want you to sit and allow yourself to feel the brokenness around you. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about your local existence. What's going on around you in your immediate life that is broken? Whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in your kids, whether it's in your neighbors, in your neighborhood, your extended family, in your immediate context, what is broken? I want you to sit in silence and just feel it. I had a conversation uh, with a friend just yesterday morning about um, the Enneagram and how uh, the, uh, I'm an Enneagram 7. And so one of the, the hallmarks of my Enneagram number, uh, my personality, is that I'm a pain avoider, right? That's just like like an instant response. But I think in a lot of ways, we all do that, right? we avoid pain. And what that results in is apathy. We don't want to look at the brokenness around us. We want to pretend like it doesn't exist. And we definitely don't want to talk about it. So my challenge for you this week is to just sit and allow yourself to feel the brokenness around you. the the brokenness inside of yourself and outside of yourself around you. And then I want you to take the book of Hebrews seriously. I want you to take that brokenness and I want you to boldly march it into the presence of God and lay it at his feet. I want you to lay it at his feet. I want you to feel it. I want you to exist in it. And then I want you to take it into the throne room of God and I want you to lay it at his feet and boldly ask him to heal. Can we do that together? Can we do that? We've been invited to do that. The book of Hebrews and the entirety of Scripture as we see Daniel doing this very thing, right? He's sitting in it. He's physically sitting in the brokenness. And he's looking for answers in the Word of God. And he takes that burden into the throne room of God and pleads for healing and pleads for forgiveness. Listen, uh, there's a... When we sing the lines, and some of you know the song that I'm referring to. When we sing the lines, break my heart for what breaks yours. I don't think we're being 100% honest most of the time. Because we don't want our hearts to be broken the way God's heart is broken at injustice. Right? We do not want that. We don't want broken hearts. We want to be comfortably numb. Again, if we're being completely honest, we don't want our hearts to be broken the way God's heart is broken. We are content to sit in apathy as long as things don't get too inconvenient for us. Once they get inconvenient for us, then we'll, then we'll cry out. But we don't want our hearts to be broken like God's heart is broken. We don't want to feel the burden. We don't want to enter into that like Daniel's entering into it. My prayer for us is that we would. My prayer for us that is as we exist in this incredibly broken time that we as the church would enter into the brokenness, would uh, let it exist around us and that, then we would uh, like collectively take it into the throne room of God and plead for healing. Plead for healing. But you're not going to find it binging on Netflix. And if I look at myself over the last eight weeks, there have been a lot of distractions, a lot of distractions. Most of us have a lot of downtime. Most of us have more time than we've probably had in years. Uh, More time with our kids. Are we spending that time effectively? More time to spend with God. Are we spending that time effectively? Are we pressing into the brokenness in our families uh, when we have opportunity to? If anything, our extra time has caused us to be even more distracted. Uh, one of my favorite pastors uh, this last week put uh, put up a little video for his church on uh, on Facebook that where he basically confessed that his screen time, as he calculated, the increase over the last eight weeks has gone up like 700%. I think that's probably true for most of us. We're spending a lot of time on the internet. How much time are we actually allowing ourselves to enter into the burden as we see the brokenness around us? Or are we just trying to fix it all the time? Now, fixing, thing isn't a, fixing things isn't a bad thing. But man, we got to enter into the brokenness. Um, listen. One of the reasons why apathy is so dangerous for us as believers specifically, and for humanity in general. One of the reasons that apathy is so dangerous is because it cheapens everything. Apathy really does cheapen everything. And we as believers believe that we have been bought with the blood of Christ. So let me just push on this a little bit. If you've been bought with the blood of Christ, doesn't that make you more valuable than anything? If you were that valuable to Jesus, doesn't that make you worth a lot? That makes us as believers, as the church, unbelievably valuable. It makes humanity unbelievably valuable because God says we are. Not because we're so great, but because God placed that value on us, that he was willing to come and die for us. That's how how valuable you are. So let's not cheapen ourselves by existing in apathy. And I'm saying this to myself as much as I'm saying it to you guys, all right? So here's what I want to do. I want to look at a quote, a long quote from one of my favorite books by a guy named C.S. Lewis. Most of you know who he is. And this book is called The Screwtape Letters. And I'm going to give you a little bit of context before we read the quote. This book is about, and this is really weird, it's it's an older demon writing to his nephew, I believe, another demon, in how to um, succeed in his charge or the human that he's been given to to influence and so the entire book is basically um this older demon writing to this younger demon about how to be how to do good demon work <laughs> and so it's it's a little bit comical when you think about it but it's so profound i would invite all of you to read the book it's incredible it, it, it just changes the way you view some of the things that we experience as humans <clears throat> But I think this this quote's incredibly applicable to what we're talking about. So I'm just going to read this, and Jordan's going to have it on the screen as well. It remains how it remains to consider how we can retrieve this disaster. Okay, so uh, uh, this demon's uh, human has now become a Christian, and so now his influencer, his his demon mentor, is writing to him. It says, "It remains to consider how we can retrieve this disaster." They're calling this guy's salvation a disaster. The great thing is to prevent his doing anything. As long as he does not convert it into action, it does not matter how much he thinks about his new repentance. Let the little brute wallow in it. Let him, if he has any bent that way, write a book about it. That is often an excellent way of sterilizing the seeds which the enemy plants in the human soul, the enemy being Jesus. Let him do anything but act. No amount of piety in his imagination and affections will harm us if we can keep it out of his will. As one of the humans has said, active habits are strengthened by repetition, but passive ones are weakened. The more often he feels without acting, the less he will be able ever to act. And in the long run, the less he will able, he will be able to feel your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Let me read that last couple lines for you again. The more often he feels without acting, the less he will be able to act. And in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. Are we responding humbly in burden or are we responding in apathy? Number two, Daniel responds by confession, not complacency, right? So he feels a burden, and what's his action? His action is confession. Uh, And again, confession for something that he's not directly responsible for. What things could Daniel have done when he was taken into exile? We've talked about this uh, a bunch. We've talked about the idea of syncretism. Uh, Just going with the flow. We've talked about the idea of sectarianism, where we separate ourselves from the current of culture. Daniel could have very easily done either one of these things, and we would have completely understood, right? Uh, He could have just been a great guy in the empire. And man, how how many people do you know where you just describe them as a great guy? He's just a great guy. When I die, I don't want to be known as a great guy. There was a great preacher that once said, um, uh, preach Jesus, uh, live, live well, preach Jesus, and be forgotten. I'm good with that. I don't want to be remembered as a good guy. I want Jesus to be remembered. Right? We can go syncretism and just be great people in a foreign culture. We can go sectarianism. We can step away from it, judge it, right? Refuse to be a part of it. But Daniel doesn't do any of these things. Let me ask you something. At any part in the book of Daniel, does Daniel complain about the evil of Babylon? No. And yet here he is in Daniel chapter 9 confessing his own guilt. That's mind-boggling to me. This guy has spent 50 years in exile in an unbelievably like, evil culture. And here he is expressing guilt over the sins of his people that he's not even responsible for. This is the most humble response that you could possibly imagine. So again, application, right? Let's zoom out. And let's look at, look at our present situation through these lenses. Our present culture through these lenses. Can you imagine what it would be like if the church, instead of doing so much hand-wringing over the evil of the culture that we exist in, maybe look inwardly a little bit more? If we were uh, more willing to examine and confess and and lay and be willing to be laid bare the brokenness that exists in us? Could possibly the, the world be changed more by doing that? Daniel never once wrings his hands over the evil of the culture that he exists in. He simply begs to be set free from it. How are we mourning our guilt? How are we complicit? Like, do we ask that question? How am I complicit in the brokenness around me? I think we, we fail to be honest and we fail to allow ourselves to, be, to, to exist in that way because of our pride. And because of our pride, we don't, don't then respond in burden and confession. We don't. But this is how Daniel responds. Let's look at how it ends. Verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. And he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, "O Daniel, now, don't you and I wish that this could happen to us? Right, We pray and we confess, and right away the, the, the angel Daniel comes and visits us and explains to us everything. That doesn't happen to me very often. In fact, it's never happened to me. Um, but I think that we can glean a lot and we can get our answers to our prayers from what Gabriel says to Daniel. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, oh Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Man, you talk about words of comfort. You are greatly loved. I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression and to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet and to anoint a most holy place. Okay, now, let's let's go back to the the historical context here. Let's go back to what Daniel's actually doing. He's consulting the book of Jeremiah and he reads 70 years. And so Daniel sits back, does the math and sees that he's getting close, right? And so he pleads for God to, to keep his promise, to send them home. The 70 years are almost up. Forgive your people. When you praise this, all of a sudden, bam, Gabriel shows up in his room and was like, so yeah, about that, right? 70 years. No. 70 weeks, 70 times seven, multiplication equals around 490 years. Now, here's what we know, because there's a both and going on here. What we know that happens is roughly after 70 years, I think it's actually closer to 69 years, Um, Cyrus, the Mede, the, the king of the Persian Empire, actually does send a large number of the Jews home and they rebuild the city of Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple. But what Gabriel is saying here is that the iniquity of the people has not yet been paid. It has not yet been paid. And that the nation of Israel will actually not exist in freedom. They will be conquered and reconquered they will exist under the oppression of foreign powers just like we saw in the statue right nebuchadnezzar's first dream the gold the statue that with the gold head and the the silver torso and the iron and all the different body parts that represented other kingdoms and then the stone representing jesus what we're seeing here is is gabriel saying to daniel the people of israel are going to exist in bondage god's going to keep his promise he's going to send them home but the sin has not yet been repaid for. It's not yet been paid for. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, okay, that is coming from Cyrus, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until their creed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, these last six chapters... Uh, If you studied for the rest of your life, um, you would find lots of different theories and may not actually come to any conclusion about them. Lots of theories. But there's one thing in the midst of all of this that everybody agrees on. Okay? Seventy years are not enough to pay for the transgression. And that there will be roughly 490 years uh, before the sin is finally dealt with. And we... You and I can sit here in history, in physical human history, and know what happens at the end of those 490 years. When when, when, uh, when Gabriel refers to the anointed one, he's referring to Jesus. The one who will come, the Messiah, who will put an end to sin. Who will pay for sin. Who will pay for the iniquity of the nation of Israel. He's referring to Calvary. He's referring to the cross. Now, Again, personal application, right um this is not just about Daniel but about us this 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 exposes us if we're willing to respond in burden, right in humility to take on the burden and confession, putting ourselves reading ourselves into the story here it, in a way that we can do that uh, aren't we just as guilty as the nation of Israel? Was it not our sin? that put Jesus on the cross as well. But This is not just Israel's story. This is not just Daniel's story. This is our story. It might be different in that we're on a, the different side of time than Daniel is, but nonetheless, this is our story. Existing in brokenness, bought from that brokenness with the blood of Jesus. Bought with a price. The iniquity washed away, God's righteousness being displayed for us and in us. So again, we're we're confronted with something, and we have a res- we have a choice to make. How are we going to respond? Are we going to respond in pride, or are we going to respond in humility? And if we're going to enter into humility, are we going to allow ourselves to feel the burden and respond then in confession? And in action? Or are we going to respond in apathy? It's just another sermon. and I guess, yeah, in that sense, it is just another sermon. I'm a dude sitting in an office in Sublimity, Oregon, looking at a camera. Another good friend sitting next to me over here. Yeah, that's about as significant as it gets, (laughs) right? It's pretty insignificant in the vast history of the world. But at the same time, the words that we're talking about, the words that we're dissecting here, the words that we're trying to actively enter into are anything but insignificant. And the challenge for us always is how are we going to respond? Daniel reads and he responds. That's the example that we have. And so my challenge for us is to be willing to enter into the brokenness, to read the words, and to respond in humility. Amen. Listen, we're going to take communion right now as we worship. I would ask you as you're sitting at home, you're maybe taking the elements with your family or maybe by yourself, put your brokenness on the table. Right? Say it out loud if you need to. Maybe do it with, maybe gather up with your kids and do this out loud. Have a time of confession where you put your brokenness out there. Maybe confess something that doesn't belong to you that you can see yourself as complicit in. The sins of your family. Man, as a family, we haven't done well at at this or we haven't done well at this. Allow ourselves to feel the brokenness. Enter into it. Feel the burden. And then we take it to the table and we lay it there and we exchange it for the blood of Jesus that was shed for our sins. We exchange it for the brokenness of His body that has made us whole. Amen? We're going to close with this. 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to Him, that's Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptab- acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Remember, Daniel said the shame belongs to us. And because of Jesus, we no longer have that shame. He took it. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that, is the, that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, he's talking to to people in the New Testament, he's talking to Christians, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Could it be that apathy is a passion of the flesh? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He's saying the world around you may see you as evildoers, but when Jesus comes back, they'll understand. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to go to the table together and lay our brokenness at His feet. Father, we love You. And Lord, we thank You for the picture that we have of what it looks like to respond to Your Word through the book and the person of Daniel. We thank You, Lord, for his life, for his example. God, we thank You that we know that You did, in fact, answer his prayer. And so, Father, we pray. We pray for healing. We pray for mercy. As we look around us, there is so much brokenness, so much injustice, Father. And we are complicit in it. We are not innocent from it. So in your righteousness, Father, we ask that you would heal, that you would save. Because you are righteous. We love you, Jesus. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Love you guys.